Good evening. It's Monday, August the 10th, and these are some of the headlines on BizarreBest.com. Chicago raises bridges to contain downtown looting. School year, like no other, launches with chaos, coast to coast. Forest fires setting Chernobyl radiation free. MAGA versus Antifa battle turns ugly in Fort Collins. 41% of Americans have adopted a minimalistic lifestyle. All of these headlines and more on BizarreBest.com. Dude, it's Bizarre Best Headlines, 100% unfiltered. Chicago had such bad looting, they had to raise the bridges to contain the looting uh, to downtown. Chicago officials raised the bridges and suspended some train and bus services Monday morning after unrest and looting caused widespread damage in the city's downtown overnight. Videos that were circulating on uh, social media captured the early morning scenes of hundreds of people in the streets, dozens of police officers looting and confrontations with the police. There was also an exchange of gunfire with the police in downtown, according to a police spokesperson, a guy named Tom Aaron. He said on Twitter earlier Monday that there were shots fired at police who returned fire and that no officers were injured. He said it was unknown at this time if offenders were shot. Some of the videos people can be seen entering various businesses and local TV stations shed storefronts vandalized, windows smashed and sidewalks littered with boxes. In one widely viewed recording of the protests, police, you mean riots. I love how they call them protests. They're freaking riots, dude. Police officers can be seen confronting a group of people in the street when someone hurled an object at one of the officers striking him in the face. He and other officers then charged the people who fled. A police spokeswoman said on Monday that the details of the overnight violence, including any arrests and damage, would be announced at 8 a.m. local time by the police superintendent, David Brown, and the city's mayor, Lori Lightfoot. The mayor's office was not available for comment early on Monday. The Chicago Transit Authority said Monday morning that at least a half a dozen bus and train lines were shut down at the request of public safety officials. The city's Office of Emergency Management and Communications alerted residents of street closures early Monday morning due to the police activity. The looting came several hours after officers exchanged fire with a person on Sunday afternoon, a shooting that drew protests, which apparently turned into riots. On Sunday, officers were called at about 2.30, and I don't know why. Every, they're killing each other every freaking weekend. Like 300 people get murdered there. Not that it makes it any, not that it makes it okay. I'm just saying, dude, like all of a sudden you have a problem with it. On Sunday, officers were called at about 2.30 p.m. to investigate reports of a man with a gun said the department. Officers confronted the person in an alley. He fled and then opened fire on the department. Officers then discharged their firearms, rightfully so, striking the offender, adding that the condition of the person taken to the University of Chicago was not known. Three officers were taken for hospital to the hospital for observation. It said the department had has opened an investigation into the shooting. Of course they have as you would. Um, so I was watching one of these looting videos, apparently that huge mile long mall was looted. 
and the accent of one of the uh, females taking video was a complete Atlanta accent. So are they traveling by bus? Was she visiting there and decided to loot? Is she from Atlanta? I mean, you know, who knows? Who knows? All I know is the looting and the unrest, um, it just, you know, it needs to stop. And uh, so all of this, you can protest all you want, but if the dude hadn't shot at the cops, he wouldn't have got shot back, period. Anyway, I'm going to link this at Bizarre Bizdoc. A school year unlike any other launches with chaos coast to coast. It's going to be screen time all the time for kindergartners and graduate students alike. Teachers are threatening strikes and students are already coming home infected with the pestilence which has upended American education. The 2021 school year has dawned and it's more chaotic than any before it, for sure. Plans are changing so fast that the students and parents can hardly keep up. Districts that spent all summer planning hybrid systems in which children would be in school part of the week ditched them as soon as the pestilent cases surged. Universities changed their teaching models their start dates, and their rules for housing, all with scant notice. I mean, what else do you expect? And many districts and colleges have yet to make final decisions, even now with the fall term already underway in some of the country. And then today I read the Big Ten was canceled completely. Plans are changing right up until the moment that schools open, said Michael Casserly, executive director of Great City Schools, a lobbying group for large school districts. Chicago Public Schools announced last week that after planning a hybrid system, its classes would begin the year online. Districts across the country have pushed back their opening dates. Last week, the first week of school in Georgia's Cherokee County School District, administrators sent 14 letters to parents, each disclosing new cases of the coronavirus, which causes the disease COVID-19. They need to put that in there like we already effing don't know. It's like a waste of breath, dude. They included 13 students ranging from 1st to 12th grade and a few teachers, more than 300 students, who had been in contact with them were directed to quarantine for 14 days. And it's not just them. It's their entire families, dude. Our parents wanted a choice for their children and we delivered. It's not perfect and we all know that, but perfection is not possible in a pandemic, says Superintendent Brian Hightower. Another Georgia high school in Paulding County drew national attention after students posted pictures and video of their peers walking without masks in tightly packed hallways. Kids aren't going to do that shit. They've never had to do it before. They're not going to start now. You'd be better off getting the young kids to do it because they'll do what they're told. Middle schoolers and high schoolers forget about it. Now six students and three staff members have tested positive for the virus, according to a letter sent to parents over the weekend. And on Sunday, the superintendent said the school would go online only for Monday and Tuesday and would announce plans beyond that on Tuesday evening. Teachers can't even plan their classes let alone, what if they have kids? They can't even plan their lives, dude. 
Last week, John Hopkins University changed its mind and said classes would be fully online, discouraging even those who had signed leases from returning to Baltimore. Students at Washington University in St. Louis faced the opposite problem when the school said on July 31st that all dorms would be converted into singles, leaving juniors and seniors scrambling to find housing last minute. And Congress talks over a pandemic relief package collapse last week, leaving no clear path to providing uh, schools with fund funding lawmakers in both major political parties agree is urgently needed. We knew how to close the schools, said Annette Anderson, assistant professor of education and deputy director of the Center for Safe and Healthy Schools at John Hopkins, but we have no idea how to properly reopen schools. The result of this chaos is uncertainty for students and their parents with profound ramifications for health, learning, emotional development, and economics in schools that open and those that do not. Right, because everyone's already paid taxes for this, that, and the other. They're not getting refunds. Are they? Of the 20 largest K-12 through districts, 17 now plan to begin the year fully remote. The big outlier is New York City, by far the nation's largest district, which plans a hybrid system and so far has withstood intense pressure from teachers and others to reverse course. Yet they have uh, checkpoints at the borders? What kind of bullshit is that? On Friday, New York Governor Cuomo gave the state's 732 school districts that go ahead to open in person if they like, as long as the state's pestilence infections rates stay low. How will they know? You won't know until it's too late, till some of the kids are infected. Across the country, districts have widely, have widely different plans based on their geography, infection rates, and partisanship. About 4% of rural districts and 21% of suburban districts have announced fully remote plans compared with 55% of urban systems, according to a study of 477 districts chosen as a representative national sample by the Center on Reinventing Public Education. Robin Lake, the Center's director, also reviewed parent surveys from districts across the country and was struck by how divergent views are. Some are saying they are terrified. Others are saying, I think this whole COVID thing is a farce. Like so much in America, decisions appear to be falling along partisan lines with schools in Republican areas far more likely to open than those in Democratic communities. It should be the same across the board, dude. We're either all in this freaking pandemic or we're not. You know? Edweek's database included 153 districts and states won by Hillary Clinton in 2016. Of them, 67% plan fully remote learning this fall. Well, there is more to this, a lot more, and I'm sure there's more to come on this whole subject. Uh, I'm going to link it at BizarreVis.com. fires have been going on for a while in Chernobyl's forest, and it's setting the radiation free. Not good. In the clear, calm, early hours of May 15, 2003, three miles west of the hulking ruins of the Chernobyl nuclear plant, Vassal Yashenko was bustling around a stand of scotch pines planted 30 years earlier. The trees were spindly and closed-spaced, 
but he was skinny enough to move easily among them, taking samples of biomass and litter. Just beyond the trees, he tinkered with the horizontal plates he had placed on the ground in a diagonal grid and covered with superfine cloth designed to absorb whatever came their way. Yashenko had just finished adjusting his monitoring equipment in the mid-afternoon when the first gusts of smoke billowed from the sides of the pines. Firefighters were torching the edges of an area, the approximate size and shape of a football field, wearing respirators, camouflage pants, and khaki shirts. Cloth bandanas covering their heads, the men were systematically setting the woods ablaze. Flame leapt five feet up trunks, racing to the tops of some trees and setting plumes of smoke aloft. Yashenko, a Ukrainian radiologist, I'm sorry, radio ecologist, had planned the controlled burn to study how radioactive particulates would behave in a fire. And he knew about the risks represented by the nuclear contamination swirling overhead. He prudently scooted to the edge of the forest, donned a mask, and began taking photographs. Was it dangerous? Yoshenko shrugs. Not so much. We were lucky the wind didn't change direction. The forest burned intensely for 90 minutes, releasing cesium-137, or cesium, I, I probably hacked that, strontium, and plutonium in blasts of smoke and heat. In just one hour, the firefighters and Yushchenko could have been exposed to more than triple the annual radiation limit for Chernobyl's nuclear workers. That was crazy, says Sergei, a forestry professor at the National University of Life and Environmental Sciences of Ukraine. That place was really contaminated. Yoshenko risked his life to provide new science to us. Yashenko's scientific blaze was a preview of Chernobyl's future. Since then, the area's climate has warmed and dried, and its wildfires, mostly sparked by arson and other human activity, have grown larger and more frequent. Each fire releases radion nuclides, which I have totally hacked probably, just as Yashenko and his colleagues documented in 2003. Each one raises anxieties in Kiev, Ukrainian capital and in Europe's major cities, but none has incinerated the landscape at the scale of the fires that have burned this past April 2020. 2020, y'all. Dude. They were far larger than any since the 86 disaster, burning for weeks and scorching nearly 1,065,165,000 acres before rain finally doused them. Monitors in Norway, 2,000 miles away, detected increased levels of cesium or cesium in the atmosphere. Kiev was smothered in smoke. Press reports estimated that the level of radiation near the fires was 16 times higher than normal, but we may never know how much was actually released. We're, it's just floating around in the air for the rest of the world to breathe in or land on, whatever. Oh my gosh, that is so fucked up. Yashenko and other others impatient to take on the ground measurements were confined to their homes by the coronavirus pandemic. August is typically the worst month of the Chernobyl fire season, and this year public anxiety is mounting. The devastation left by the world's worst nuclear disaster is colliding 
with the disaster of climate change and the consequences reach far and deep. The Chernobyl exclusion zone is a rich mosaic of forests, grasslands, and bogs stretching 1,000 square miles across northern Ukraine. Dude, that's crazy, man. This guy's saying, when I visited in 2013, I was shocked, like so many other visitor, visitors, by the abandoned family farmhouses with branches growing out of their empty windows by painted silhouettes of children dancing on the walls. That would just be eerie as shit. I'm sorry, I lost my... Oh, a community center in the hastily evacuated city of Piripat, Pir Pripyat, Pripyat, I probably hacked that too, still haunted by their absence. But I also saw grasslands dotted with young pines, the wind wafting tawny, the heads of grains gone wild, and the white-tailed eagle soaring over the power plant cooling pond. In a grove of native birch trees, I stood in the morning light as it burnished the leaves against luminous white trunks. I was enchanted until my dosimeter, dosimeter began chattering. Had I lingered there for an hour, I later realized I would have been exposed to radiation levels 100 times beyond that what's considered safe for humans. It's still a very poisonous place to be. That's crazy, dude. From Hiroshima, Chernobyl, and Fukushima, we are learning about the ghastly lingering effects of radiation on human bodies. From the uninhibited landscapes of Chernobyl, we are learning how ecosystems react to and recover from the same invisible assault. In the chaos after April 26, 1986 disaster, Soviet officials worked frantically to contain the radiation spewing from the nuclear power plant number four reactor. And by, those dudes were heroes, man. Heroes. Their miners were like, you got to see Chernobyl on HBO, dude. That's all I can tell you. It was so eerie, I can't. I just can't. Um, to protect public health, they evacuated an area nearly the size of Yosemite National Park. They gave their lives to protect the world, or try to. Even though in the beginning they tried to cover it up like nothing was happening, nothing. Ugh. No bullshit, dude. About to kill everybody. Since then, only those with permission are allowed into the exclusion zone, which Ukrainians aptly call the zone of alienation. Ukrainian law mandates that nothing, no blackberries, no mushrooms, no radian eucalides leave the zone until the radiation dissipates, a long-term proposition given the nearly 24,000-year half-life of plutonium-239. It'll never dissipate, dude. Not in our lifetime. Not in our grandchildren's or great-grandchildren's lifetimes. Period. The unexpected result is an immense long-term ecological laboratory. Within the exclusion zones, scientists are analyzing everything, including the health of the wolves and the moose that have wandered back and the effects of radiation on barn swallows, voles, and the microorganisms that decompose forest litter. Now, as wildfires worsen, scientists are trying to determine how these hard-hit ecosystems will respond to yet another unparalleled disruption. Chernobyl is not a landscape inclined to burn. The Vladimir 
Lenin nuclear power plant was built on the southwestern edge of the Piraprat Marshes, Europe's largest swamp. For centuries, the watery terrain was all but impenetrable. Floods made it impassable for months at a time and bogs disoriented persistent invaders. The drier areas were forested with birch, aspen, and other hardwoods and some pines. In the late 19th century, these forests were cleared for intensive agriculture. But even the most enterprising farmers struggled to grow wheat and other crops in the gravelly, sandy soil. After Ukraine became part of the Soviet Union in 22, the government returned the land to forests, logging them for fuel to produce glass and vodka. But instead of the natural mix of species, Soviet foremasters, I'm sorry, Soviet foresters, planted row after evenly spaced row of scotch pines, creating a giant softwood production area in a highly regulated forest. By the 50s, these regularly logged pine plantations covered over 400 square miles of what is now the Chernobyl exclusion zone. The explosions that rocked the nuclear power plant in 86 transformed all life in the region, human and otherwise. 31 people died as an immediate effect of the explosion and, and as many as 150,000 have since died of radiation exposure in Ukraine alone. Conservative estimates predict that the death toll will grow by another 41,000. Other estimates exceed 1 million. And the disaster upended the lives of those who survived. The mandatory evacuation of 350,000 people were forced, forced residents of Piripat to leave their newly built city, farmers to abandon their fields, and loggers to find work elsewhere. The forest hit hardest by the nuclear blast was a pine plantation that stood directly in the path of the most deadly debris. Pines are extremely sensitive to radiation and the trees turned rust orange before they died. Workers nicknamed the plantation the Red Forest. As part of the effort to contain the radioactive material, they bulldozed it, buried the trees in more than 5 million square yards of topsoil, and covered the area with more than a foot of sand. Then they replanted it with pines. As the, that does, I don't know, dude, that doesn't really make sense. As the new trees grew, radiation in the soil suppressed an enzyme that contributes to the classic single stem conifer shape, resulting in an expanse of odd looking bushy dwarf pines. Nuke pines, dude. The rest of the forest in the exclusion zone were simply abandoned. Ma management stopped, leaving the heavily industrialized forest to evolve in their own way at their own pace. Pines began creeping into less contaminated farmland. Birches and other native species less sensitive to radiation began colonizing the hotter areas, slowly replacing the scotch pines so favored by so Soviet foresters. Before the explosion of Chernobyl's nuclear reactor, Forests covered about 30% of the exclusion zone. They now cover about 70%. Okay, dude, it goes on and on for another two hours at least. Uh, you get the point. So these fires are releasing this radiation into the air um, still. Um, so there's that. But anyway, I'm going to link it. So you can read it at Bizarre Abyss. Shocking video shows the moment pro-police and counter-protesters got into an ugly altercation during dueling protests over the weekend. You mean MAGA and Antifa. 
The violence broke out during a pro-police back the blue rally in Fort Collins, Colorado on Saturday, and apparently Antifa thought they would show up. Not good for them. Video shot during the event captured the moment tensions between the two groups boiled over as a group of men who apparently attended the rally approached a group of counter-protests dressed in black. As the two groups approached a ditch, a fight broke out among the groups with people scuffling on the ground, punching each other and spewing obscenities. I watched the video. It was pretty, uh, pretty massive. And those dudes were not winning. If I was them, I would have left long before this even happened. Some were seen using objects. It's unclear what preceded the encounter to which uh, group the counter-protesters were associated with. Bullshit. You know who they were associated with. Don't lie. That's what I hate, man, about the news. You know what? You know who they were associated with. The altercation lasted less than two minutes before it began to slow. Well, the, the video that I saw, they were in a suburb. Um, I think this is the same one. They were in a suburb talking shit and walked into the wrong suburb. That's what effing happened. When cops arrived on the scene, one of the, uh, most of the men had fled. However, at least three people were arrested following the brawl. We respect everyone's right to peacefully assemble, said Fort Collins police. No, dude. No, you don't. <laughs> and not only that, these aren't peaceful protests. So just stop lying, dude. He continued, truly supporting a cause means representing its values. Committing crimes in our community is not a way to support police. That's correct. We stand for safety, period. We want all our, our community members to feel safe here in Fort Collins, and we reject any form of hate. Following the death of, you mean the murder? They all say, following the death of George Floyd. Ugh. No, the murder. In May this year, hundreds of BLM protests have taken place. You mean riots? Uh, have taken place across the U.S. demanding justice and an end to police brutality. Oh, it's way past that, y'all. Oh my God, it is way past that. And then, of course, they're going to go into the whole, what happened to George Floyd? Okay, so I'm not going to even bother reading anymore, but you get the point. Uh, anyway, if you want to see the video, I will link it at BizarreBest.com. Let's take a quick break, and uh, we wanted to show you the support page at BizarreBest.com, where you can just go to BizarreBest.com and click on Support Us. You can choose T-shirts. Uh, anything you've seen in the videos, we try to list. There's five uh, different ways that you can try to support us. You can use Cash App, Zelle, PayPal, Bitcoin. Um, you can just send a straight uh, Zelle request if you want, Venmo. You can uh, choose to uh, purchase a mask, any of the t-shirts. We got Alien Lives Matter, Earth Life Matters. Black Hole Eats Matters. Black Holes Eat Matter. Um, we've got a lot of different things you can do to support us. We would certainly appreciate it if you feel that we deserve that. Thank you so well, much. Well, we're experiencing some hard times and some people are experiencing it more than others. Um, one in four Americans have missed paying a bill since the pestilence emerged. 
Paying off bills is tough for many these days, and a new survey shows that Americans are cutting costs or even adopting a minimalistic lifestyle to make ends meet. I can dig it. Gotta get rid of that extra car payment. Whatever you gotta do. From our social lives to professional careers, life as we know it has shifted since the beginning of 2020. Well, almost everything. Millions have, may have lost their jobs due to COVID, but that doesn't mean that the bills have stopped coming in. Amen. Indeed, paying off bills are an unavoidable part of life, even during a pandemic. Unfortunately, a new survey of 2,000 Americans finds that one in four, or 24%, have already missed at least one payment since the pandemic began. Among the group, 26% say they haven't paid their cell or cable bill. Another 25 failed to pay their streaming services, and perhaps more worryingly, some are not even paying their electric or utility bills. On average, Americans who admit skipping a bill payment have missed five bills altogether. Commissioned by Energy Bot, the survey set out to gauge just how much the pestilence has dealt a blow to Americans financially. Predictably, money is a big concern these days. In fact, 63% say they're always worried about paying their bills right now. Similarly, 58% are battling extra stress over their bills since the pandemic started. I can dig it. With those last stats in mind, it makes sense that 65% of respondents admit that they've had to make some sacrifices lately to make ends meet. What type of sacrifices are we talking about? Many have canceled subscription services. That's 38%. The gym memberships are 39%. Others are cutting costs by no longer ordering takeout food. That's 35%. I have only now, I bet you a handful of times, ordered to go uh, since this whole thing started. All in all, 52% say they only buy the essentials these days. Another 43% are no longer buying premium quality goods, toilet paper, gas, in an effort to save some cash. Some are adopting new lifestyles. 41% say they're following minimalistic approaches to life. Moreover, about two in five people never use their credit card anymore because it encourages them to spend more. Dude, no doubt. A third of Americans have also been forced to dip into their savings accounts because of COVID. On that note, 55% of respondents often feel overwhelmed by just how much the pestilence has changed their financial footing. Even small expenses like repairing a broken home appliance just aren't possible right now. A significant portion of respondents, 35%, have learned to live without a broken have learned to live without a broken appliance because they just can't afford to fix it. Meanwhile, 68% have tried to fix the appliance themselves or asked a spouse to fix it. Lots of YouTube's videos out there on that, guys. Others, 33%, have used some of their savings to solve such issues when they were unable to fix it themselves. Another 37% say, however, that they wouldn't even have enough savings to fix the appliance if it were to break. A few other common ways Americans are saving money through the pandemic are turning off the lights when they're not needed, that's 62%. Turning off appliances when they're not being used, that's 46%. Closing windows or doors when the heat is on, 42%. Opening the windows instead of using the AC, that's 36%. And using blinds to adjust room temperatures, 33%. Dude, that, that is amazing. Um, and 
Listen, if you have to be one of those that have had to cut back and do without a little bit here and there, um, I totally understand. I am so glad I quit smoking in 2018 because if I was smoking now, man, I have dreams that I still smoke. So I wake up guilty, like, oh my God, I was smoking. But if I had to actually pay for cigarettes, it would be like, oh, I am wasting all this money. Like, how can I do this right now? Um, I think we've all had to relearn how to, to do our spending a little bit better since all this has began. Uh, anyway, I will link that at bizarrebiz.com. Thank you for joining me tonight. I hope y'all had a fantastic weekend, and I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. Make sure you take a deep breath. Think positive. Dude, penguins given free reign to roam around the aquarium since there's no visitors allowed. That's awesome. Dude, look, he's looking around. He's loving it. I got a new section under the on the headlines page at the bottom called Bad Seeds. Matt Geats of Florida, 1st Congressional District, blocked the whole process by wearing a gas mask when reviewing the funding. You're a super freaking winner, dude. An Alaska airman has been punished for peeing in the office coffee maker. Dude, why? Like, how did, why? Did you take it in the bathroom with you? Did you stand in the kitchen and whip it out? Clearly, this airman is dedicated to getting kicked the F out. He's trying really hard, y'all.